1: good buddy Allison Luca and Allison what's going on
0: not much I'm glad you gave me an excuse to rewatch some good hockey
1: yes well today we're doing the uh we're doing the rewatch of the it's not necessarily a classic because it was only four games and I think uh you know, one fan base, particularly the Lightning, will be very upset about this, but the, the Blue Jackets <laughs> Lightning series from last year, and we're only a year removed. But the reason why I thought this would be a fun exercise for us to do beyond just sort of the absurdity and the historically um, seismic upset that it was is, and I'm sure you felt this as well, being uh, so centralized in, in Columbus is like, it just felt like in the moment, maybe it was because there was so much going on in the entire round one around the league with all the upsets. But this one in particular, as it was happening, there was this kind of like whirlwind nature to it where you couldn't even really take a step back and appreciate what was happening because it just felt like the punches were coming right like from all different directions. And so, I wanted to a year removed now um, see if we can get make some more sense of it and maybe find some <laughs> instructive takeaways for the future rather than just saying you know kind of shrugging our shoulders and just being like well that's playoff hockey for you.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean it, it it is true, you know, you think back to that, I mean it was literally a week, right? I yeah. mean and it's it was so surreal, everything was surreal about it. The way game 1 started, the fact that the blue jackets come back to win any game, let alone one game, the game 1, the the, the energy around the lightning, I mean the whole thing it, it was just insane you kind of had to ground yourself and say i just need to pay attention because none of this makes sense
1: well i think the what makes it i think honestly the most sort of staggering upset that i can remember um at least like as an adult is i i did um I did the two, uh, the series with the Canadians and the Capitals when Yarrow Halak was just out of his mind for a couple games and just stole mm-hmm. the series when, when Washington was similarly this offensive juggernaut to what this Tampa Bay Lightning team was. But in that case, it was much easier to chalk that up to, well, a goalie got really hot and that sometimes happens in these playoff series. What made this one so jarring was... I wouldn't say necessarily the Blue Jackets completely outplayed the Lightning, although there were certainly stretches where it looked like they were the significantly better team. But they were really like trading punches with them and going toe to toe and really weren't um, sort of backing down and trying to play this conservative style of hockey. And I think that was the most kind of eye opening thing for me that they were able to to not only get away with that, but actually just win all four games doing so.
0: Yeah, and it's, I think it's really interesting, you know, if you follow the Blue Jackets, uh, like I do. You know, this is a team that's evolved because to your point, I mean, you look you look at that Tampa Bay roster, and it was obviously just stacked with talent, well-earned recognition for so many players there. Not a lot of people know a lot of players on the Columbus Blue Jackets, particularly last season before the trade deadline. And this was a matchup that was won in large part due to strategy, which is so interesting to me because. A few years prior to this, John Tortorella had kind of been out-strategized by an opponent when the team lost to Pittsburgh. Um, He was out-strategized by his friend Mike Sullivan. And so to see that evolution, to realize there was going to be a talent mismatch-up, to accept that and then make strategic changes and then see the team execute it almost perfectly for the majority of the series, that was pretty cool to see.
1: Well, no pun intended, but it was a bit of a perfect storm. I'm I'm certainly not saying that anyone (laughs) predicted this. I remember I did a a series-by-series breakdown before this postseason, and we did 15 minutes on the series with Mike Johnson, and we were going back and forth. And I didn't want to just do your typical, well, the Lightning are one of the best teams we've ever seen, so they're just going to steamroll this. I wanted to sort of look at it from Columbus' perspective and how they could pull off the upset, and we sort of highlighted you know, you want to slow down the pace a little bit and limit the events and the Blue Jackets that season. They didn't play that way in this series, but they were one of the slower-paced 5-on-5 teams for the year. Uh, Limit the number of power plays. The Blue Jackets, I I believe, were either 30th or 31st in terms of penalties taken, and we saw that in this series where they were incredibly disciplined and, in fact, got under the Tampa Bay's skin and and sort of flipped it on them. And then a hot goalie, and, and Bobrovsky certainly down the stretch after the after the all-star break was a completely different goalie than he was at the start of the year and his season-long numbers didn't do justice how well he was playing heading into this so the formula was there but I mean, let's be real, I don't think anyone uh, saw this coming, let alone just a Blue Jackets series win, not even uh, a sweep. And it was just this whirlwind in one week. And I think sort of all the betting odds, all of the models heading into the postseason uh, highlight that. And it's going to, you know, give a lot of ammunition for people who um, think statistical modeling is silly. They're going to (laughs) point to the series and be like, oh, well, you had the the Lightning as this prohibitive favorite and they didn't win a single game. So why should we care about these numbers? And I guess that's part of what makes... Uh, the NHL postseason fun is that randomness and the fact that anything can happen, but in in some ways it also is kind of, it feels a bit uh, counterproductive in a way just because it, it sort of sets back the movement a little bit with people thinking that, uh, you know, numbers don't necessarily mean anything when you come to the postseason.
0: I mean, it's, it's, it's a fair point. And it's funny. I mean, one of the, one of the quotes from this game four that I just laughed at, and this is classic Pierre LeBron, mm. uh, not Pierre LeBron, my goodness, Pierre <laughs> Maguire, oh, yes. um, he said, you know, late, late in the third, he said, it's not an analytics sport. It's a character sport. Yep. And, and then goes on to cite some of the analytical, uh, outstanding things that the blue jackets were doing, which was running a power kill, a very aggressive mm-hmm. <laughs> offensive penalty kill and things like this. But, I think it it does, you know. Look, people who hate analytics are going to hate analytics till they they're done covering the game. But what I think it is, what it does do, is it takes us to where I think so many of us are have already been thinking for a long time, which is the system side of it, right? And there are things we can't measure. I mean, and there are there are things about executing and and tactically perfecting a. A counterattack against a team like the Lightning that, you know, one of the things I did find a way to do was measure that forecheck during that series. And the Blue Jackets won that battle and the result was a suppressed offense for the Lightning. So the models didn't work, but, you know, we know this too, that hockey still has work to do in in measuring so much of the game. And um, I, I look, I'm an analytical person and I didn't have the blue jackets winning this series either. So um, it is the fun of it for sure.
1: Well, one of my most unanswerable questions skipping ahead is what exactly does Pierre Maguire think analytics is? And, and <laughs> it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's this really, uh, we're, we'll talk more about him when we get into the commentary corner. But uh, it, for me, it's always kind of funny because in this game, he's like tiptoeing around so many concepts, as you mentioned there, that we all, universally agree are very important and he's talking about the forecheck and he's talking about all these things and columbus's defense activating and jumping in and he's basically like alluding to a lot of these like more progressive modern aggressive concepts that, that that the blue jackets are uh using but at the same time he's finding a backhanded way to bring down analytics as well even though the, those two things kind of work in concert and that's why it's it's so silly to me it feels like this pure just like willful burying your head in the sand and kind of uh you know being blissfully ignorant and just like a lack of understanding of what analytics actually is because in a way he's sort of propping it up with his commentary throughout the game
0: but totally and it's like i said you know i think I think in anything, not just sports analytics, to presume that because we don't measure something means it it can't be an analytical idea, like you just said, is so short-sighted. There's so many things that, I mean, all of us who, you know, we do micro-tracking because we can't Technically, measure off gameplay, you know, entries and exits, but there's analytical work that's been done there. He mentions that too. You know, he talks about how the Tampa Bay can't get through the zone, they don't have a transition game. There are analytical concepts there. And just because those aren't stats that, at least right now in the NHL, we can get in a publicly available way quickly. That doesn't mean that they aren't analytics. That doesn't mean there isn't measures to be used or still to be developed that help us address these things that we know can make an impact on the game. Round
1: number one, game four. It's the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Columbus Blue Jackets. Good evening everybody, I'm John Forsland. As always, thanks for joining us. This record-setting season for the Tampa Bay Lightning hanging in the balance tonight as they face elimination for the first time in this series and for the second time in this series they will play without injured defenseman Victor Hedman, but they should get a boost. The NHL's leading scorer Nikita Kucherov returns from a one-game suspension. They'll look to make an impact tonight. Okay, well let's get into the categories and we'll start with sort of the legacy of the game and I wanted to set the scene a little bit for you and I, I know everyone <laughs> is aware of how big of an upset is but i did want to sort of just put a bit of num- a few numbers to it and kind of try to quantify the magnitude and sort of the proportions of of this upset. And it was funny because heading in um during the regular season the lightning had certainly dominated pretty much every single team they played i mean they won 62 games for crying out loud, but particularly <laughs> against columbus and this was a different columbus team by the time they entered the playoffs after the trade deadline and for a lot of these matchups but in the regular season when they played it was 8-2 tampa bay 4-0 tampa bay 5-1 <laughs> and then game one starts three nothing and what age the worst was uh was at the time when tampa bay went up three nothing i was like um the season series so far is 20 to 3 for tampa bay that's probably not a good sign for columbus and they basically like inverted it within the next three and a half games or whatever so it was uh it was funny to see sort of how quickly you could just throw uh the regular season stats and and the season series out of the window but When in preparation for the show, I was going back and I was kind of trying to watch as much as I could of the three games that led up to it. The reason we chose game four was because I thought it was a really exciting back and forth tilt, but it also captured Mm -hmm. the essence of, um, you know, sort of how excitable the the Columbus uh, fan base was in the, in the arena, but also just um, sort of what was going on in this series with Tampa Bay looking like they were going to get there, but not being able to figure out what was going on. But in game one, and that was sort of probably the craziest game of this series. I kind of forgot uh, just how ridiculous it was because we know that Columbus came back from being down 3-0 after the first period. But rewatching it, it easily could have been like 5, 6, maybe even 7-0 at some point in that game. Like, they were really... Flailing. There was one moment where a puck just basically went through Sergey Bobrovsky and Marcus <laughs> Nudovara cleared it off the goal line. He made a couple big pad saves on, on Kucherov and Stamkos himself, but there was a post in there and, and it really felt like it was like basically what going along script with what we thought it was going to look like. And then all of a sudden it flips and they start playing completely different. And in the moment, what was, what was going on there? Because Pierre throughout the series was talking about how, you know, Tortorella went into the locker room and gave this motivational speech to his team about how they couldn't play scared and how they needed to be more aggressive, particularly with the defensemen, how they needed to kind of jump in and be, and and we saw that with David Savard and the goal he scores and Seth Jones and so on and so forth. But what was going on there in the moment? Like, is it just sort of this uh, benefit of hindsight thing where we can look back at it and go like, oh, there was this one magical moment, whereas if the comeback hadn't happened, we just never would have talked about it because I'm sure coaches give motivational speeches that don't lead to results all the time. So like, what what was going on in that moment?
0: Yeah. I mean, and and to add on to kind of your context, I mean, for uh, people might remember it was in Tampa where Sergei Bobrovsky gets pulled and he walks out on his team and gets suspended after. I mean, the storylines between these two teams, like you said, the script seemed to be written. But the irony about that narrative of the speech is so what happens is there's that first period. and, And after that first period, you know, I was I was with you. I was like, you know, the people, the jokes were flying, oh, the series can be won in one game. Ha ha ha. And, right. um, you know, I was just I was just hoping for the organization not to to feel embarrassed by their showing. I just wanted them to make it competitive at that point. And then after the team comes back and wins, this speech of John Tortorella just driving his team hits the airwaves. Well, the irony is the speech was actually before the game. So oh. he gives that speech and the team comes out and basically lays an egg the first period. Yeah. And, and after everything's said and done, the guys would kind of joke saying they were perhaps almost too amped um, by the speech. But you know, I think that um, what turned it around is that these guys really bought into everyone counting them out and using that as motivation. You know, even before this series started, that's was that was Torts' line. He's like, "I'm sick of everyone asking me about Tampa if you if you want to talk to me, ask me questions about my team." And I think that this group perhaps just got pounded so hard that first period that maybe something unlocked for them and said, "You know, what, what do we have to lose now? Just go do it. Just give everything." And they come out for that second period and within the first few minutes, Bob makes a huge save. Um, I believe on Kucherov in, in, a, in a, a blue are on the penalty kill. And I think for the team to see him respond that way, we all didn't know if Bob was even going to come back out mm-hmm. for the second period. Yep. And so to see him make that save gave his team confidence because a huge narrative for this organization has been that Sergei Bobrovsky couldn't perform in the playoffs. And and to, I'm, it sounds like I'm overemphasizing one save, but I think they needed anything right at that moment to hang their hat on and then the team kind of steadies they defend the penalty kill which has been had been their calling card all season and then they hold the line and then their captain Nick Felino goes on this insane break this is not Nick Felino's forte god bless Nick Felino <laughs> and and scores the opening goal and you know again i'm a believer in analytics we talk about analytics all the time but everyone i've talked to has said that the intangible value of seeing your captain do that can be that kind of final mental lock to to make you dig into the system and then the guys start started to see how they'd been asked to play pay off and i think that's what tilted the ice plus i like i still don't understand what happened to tampa like it just yep. i I, rem, I remember even when they were in columbus i mean you'd talk to Stamkos, you'd hear john cooper and just We joke about being annoyed by hockey cliches, but you would hear there was no fire. There was no urgency. There was no frustration. It was just kind of like, well, yeah. I mean, it was was shocking to me the energy that that group was giving off, too. So uh, Columbus circles, we point to the save and the first goal, and and then the ice kind of tilts from there.
1: Well, and this series was this great sort of like psychological exercise and sort of Mm -hmm. how... um, you know, these existing maybe biases or expectations that you have getting into it, how they can cloud, because as a series goes along, and especially once you start getting into game three, let's say, and, you know, the crowd's buzzing and Columbus just comes out out of the gate roaring and they're just dominating, there was still this like nagging thought in the back of my head where it was just like and I'm I'm sure I wasn't alone where you had this feeling in the moment of waiting for Tampa Bay to figure it out. And then as Uh soon as they would and they solve Columbus in whatever way that was, they would just all of a sudden turn on the jets and never look back and look like the Tampa Bay team we were expecting in the regular season and just keep outscoring them and just get back into this and it was to the point where it was really funny following the 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 betting odds throughout the series because <laughs> you know you enter it and Tampa Bay is this just prohibitive minus 340 favorite they're 2 to 1 to win the cup and and I think the Bruins were second best at like 9 to 1 or something it was one of the uh, biggest gaps that we've ever really seen and even after the lightning lose game 1 at home in such a demoralizing fashion they still enter a uh, uh, game to minus 175 to win the series as a prohibitive favorite And as the series goes on like the lightning were still favored in every single game even on the road and i think part of it was um people just expecting that listen we still think they're the better team and so they're eventually going to do this and eventually you just get to game four and, and you have this kind of aha moment where it's like oh it's just not going to happen i guess like they're going to run out of uh real estate here to, to do so and to figure it out but when was the for you watching this and following alive, live, like when was the point where you really started to actually believe that this could happen and and Columbus was either the better team at the moment or had their number for whatever reason or just was eventually going to be able to get over the top and, and Tampa Bay wasn't going to be able to figure it out. Was there a certain uh, aha moment for you there or was it just like you actually had to wait to see game four end with those three empty netters or whatever before you could finally believe it?
0: <laughs> I You know, I think... um it, when we realized how effective the four check was going to be, um, that was when I, I, and you could again, see the frustration. You could see the tangible on ice results of that, the suppress the suppressive nature of that on how Tampa Bay's offense was built. I, I started to have confidence, but I'm not going to lie. I don't, I, <laughs> I needed the final score to hit on, on the, the series clinching game um, because you just never know. And And this is, You know, we, I know we'll get to this, but one of my most unanswerable questions is what if Tampa Bay had won one of those first four games? Because Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I, I, and Columbus people might hate me for this. I don't know if this, and we were talking about it going into game four. If the series goes back to Tampa, will they win that? And, you know, to come at game four was when Tampa came back, remember? So as opposed to, you know, we talk about the importance of game one, game four is when Tampa finally comes back and ties the game. If they win that game, does does the switch flip in their favor? And now they go to home ice. It, it, who's to say if, if Tampa Bay could have won one of those first four games is is Tampa Bay the one that continues on to the second round? Columbus is still searching for their first series win. I I don't know the answer to that question. I think it they could have they could have turned it around,
1: like you said. You just hit the nail on the head. You perfectly summarized why I wanted to do this particular game. There's this like five minute stretch in real time <laughs> where mm-hmm. Braden Point scores that goal and they make it three three, coming back from a three one deficit. And if you told me at that mo- moment that Tampa Bay was just going to come back and never look back and win the series, I would have completely believed it. And Columbus literally scores on the next shift on a delayed penalty and it's over. And it's just it it was just surreal to to follow that in a moment and sort of need to finally wake up to the fact that this was actually happening because the improbability of it was just so extreme so we're going to get into all that uh this game unfortunately isn't on youtube but if anyone has nhl tv they can fire it up it's there they broadcast in entirety we're going to do the nbc feed with john forzen and pierre Maguire. and so hopefully people enjoy it and watch this back with us and uh stay safe in the meantime and use this as a bit of a distraction for themselves so Let's get into what age the best. What do you what do you have for this category Alison?
0: Yeah, for me and you know particularly when you look at the changes to the Blue Jackets roster from the end of last season to this what age the best was that the Blue Jackets took that forecheck, that key to success against Tampa and really made it part of their identity this year and that's how they won this year. Mm-hmm. That became their calling card. So that coming into Columbus's identity and because they knew it worked against the best team arguably last year, I think it gave the team a really quick buy-in period. So they went right to it. They knew it could, it could work. Um, and I think that the other thing that aged the best was the very quiet ascension of oliver bjorkstrand Mm, um this is a player who i mean he gets the series winning goal here in game four but this was a player who would always surge late in the season still was kind of trying to find the other half of his game he was obviously offensively talented but this is a guy who and we learned this this year talking to him really paid attention to what made artemi panarin so elite brought what he could of that into his game. And and this season, he has become, John Tortorella said it, the most consistent forward on the team and probably one of their most valuable players.
1: Yeah, I had... Um, Columbus is just forward group in general in this game. It was mm-hmm. kind of... It was a bit... Uh... You know, I I knew what they had, but it was just seeing it uh, again, where you have this top line: Panarin playing with Dubois and Bjorkstrand, and and kudos to John Tortorella because throughout the year that Panarin, Dubois, Atkinson trio before the trades had been one of the most dominant offensively potent uh, forward lines in the entire league, and they would played like 700-some-odd minutes together at 5-on-5, five five. and for them to kind of switch that up and try to make all of these new pieces fit where you bump Yorkstrand up, but then you have this second line that's just flying out there with and Atkinson, and Zingle and mm-hmm. then the third line with Polino, Anderson, and Texier. All, and then you have Riley Nash and Boone Jenner on the fourth line, and those guys are overqualified obviously for those roles as well. Sort of that depth, and and you know we talk about the star power that Tampa Bay has, and obviously when you have Kucherov and Stamkos and point and headman uh those guys are brand name household house stars but columbus in this series like this forward group is not too shabby itself like they really could it's a bit of a cliche but they really could just roll four lines and play fast and sort of all four of those lines could play the way for checking up tempo style, that the team wanted to play regardless of who was out there, and that must be such a luxury for a coach to be able to do that without having to sort of plug their nose and, and not look for a couple minutes and and hope that uh, their fourth line doesn't all of a sudden <laughs> give up a goal against or take a dumb penalty.
0: Absolutely, and I think too, you know, and, and this was something that Pierre did did note that there was a, and this was. You know, this was the last season that we may see Brandon Dubinsky play, mm-hmm. and that that fourth line of Riley Nash, Boone Jenner, Brandon Dubinsky, and the, that identity, that line was an identity line in the right sense of the word, and that that was the heart of getting the forecheck, of executing the forecheck. I mean, Riley Nash's defensive performance is so subtle but so important. I mean, there are so many just little breakups and little denied entries that he has even in just game four, that I agree. I mean, that when that's your fourth line with last year where each of those players was at with their game, it 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 was huge.
1: I love also with these playoff series, sometimes the uh, you know, the chess match nature of it or sort of coaches adjusting on the fly and moving certain pieces around. And in this game, you already alluded to Bjork Strand and how he was playing on the top line and, and what aged the best in terms of his ascension and what he would do this year. But similarly for Tampa Bay, John Cooper goes into this game. Kucherov misses Game Three because of his suspension. He's back in the lineup, and Cooper just stacks his top line with Kucherov, Stamkos, and Sorelli, and he bumps Stamkos to the wing to play with those guys, and then he has Point, Palat, and Johnson. And it was really fascinating to see, um, you know, both Sorelli and Bjorkstrand on opposite sides playing these huge roles on their on their individual teams' top lines, and then heading into this year where Bjorkstrand is you know, top 20 in 5-on-5 goals and on a permanent basis, one of the best goal scorers in the league. And Sorelli is, you know, for, for my money, the, the selkie winner and and, and mm-hmm. really develops into this great two-way player. And so it was kind of cool to see um, these young players playing bigger roles than they probably had throughout the regular season and sort of what it would mean for them uh, heading into this season. Absolutely agree. Uh, and, you know, on the Sorelli on the point, I wanted to get into this a little bit with you where from sort of a a line building perspective and and I'm so fascinated by this idea of because there's very few perfect well-rounded players it feels like each player has their own strengths and weaknesses obviously and so with Sorelli he's this type of player where he may not have high-end skill per se but his positional awareness and his particularly ability to forecheck and cause turnovers and um retrieve the puck for his team and we see it actually on tampa bay's first goal in this game where yep, he, yep. he he hounds someone on the blue line causes a turnover it goes to kucherov who flips it to stamp goes and they score and i'm so intrigued by this idea of putting uh complementary skill sets together where sorelli doesn't need the puck on his stick so he can play so well with a guy like kucherov or stamp goes because he can just get them the puck Get out of the way. And then once they lose possession, go back and retrieve it and basically give them added opportunities in the offensive zone. But I understand why coaches sometimes would maybe look at a guy like Sorelli and go, well, he provides too much defensive matchup value for us. So we're going to keep him in the bottom six and have him play against the other teams' best players with, you know, a 35, 40% offensive zone start rate. But I, I just love that idea of maybe taking a guy with not your conventional first line caliber offensive skills and putting them with your highest skilled players to be able to retrieve the puck and get it similar to like what like the Canucks were doing in their heyday with Alex Burroughs playing with the Sedins or something like that
0: mm-hmm. and it I mean to your point that turnover he takes the puck away from Seth Jones on the blue line yep. that's Seth Jones and it's I mean that's that's a flub by Seth but that's also like you say good play there and I think that you know that was one thing too it's it's I I do consider it a pleasure to have been able to cover a player like Artemi Panarin because he's an elite player, but not exactly in the same vein, obviously, but what makes Panarin special isn't because he scores goals, right? It's his, even that Bjorkstrand game-winning goal, it's Panarin that makes that goal happen. Mm -hmm. And watching a player who selflessly, as, as we say in the hockey circles, create for others to me that's more fun almost than the goals themselves
1: <laughs> yeah i know panarin has this play he doesn't get an assist on it because they don't wind up scoring i forget what the exact moment of it was i should have jotted it down but um they have this like impromptu kind of like three on one break almost, or it's a three on two, and Panarin's in the offensive zone, really close to Vasilevsky actually, and he does this like little edge work. It's it's so small that you almost wouldn't notice it if you hadn't just watched the replay a couple of times. But he kind of sucks the defender over to him just a little yep. bit, so he can pass it into the middle of the ice for to Bjorkstrand or whoever, and they get a they get a great scoring chance. But it was this yep. like little detail where he just holds on to the puck for a split, not even a half second, like a millisecond longer. And it just causes the defender to lean a little bit. And at that point he's got him where he wants him and he gets it for a better scoring chance. And it's, it's, it's just like, it's brilliant. It's so fun to watch that type of hockey.
0: Absolutely. And again, that's why I say, you know, it, and you know, when it is, I've got, I actually did jot it down. I think this is the one it's a second period with 1455 to play, but, uh, but it's, yeah. And, and, you know, I think too, that's what gives it, It's been really interesting to hear Bjorkstrand talk and show what he learned from Panarin because you can see little wrinkles of that from him. And there's even that chance, the odd man rush before Panarin's empty net goal where he drives down and does a little juke too down there. I mean there's just so many little things that it's so fun to watch him that that go beyond just – when, when you talk about the top elite players, it, it's so much, we need analytics to measure what it is that makes our Artemi Panarin <laughs> so special. Cause it's, it's different than the traditional stats that we look at.
1: Yep. Uh, what age is the best, the Columbus home crowd, just because, uh, you know, we don't have live hockey now, unfortunately it's probably gonna be a while <laughs> until we have fans jammed into an arena like this, but man, it is just, it's so fun. It's it's, and this is playoff hockey, right? We talk about like the league trying to, um, get back obviously some of the revenue and and play playoff hockey games at some point here in the summer. And I totally understand why. And and we're going to watch it because we're so starved for, uh, for live sports and, and and we're certainly going to enjoy it, but it's this crowd where they're just like, Entire game. I mean, the broadcast opens up, and as John Forslund just sitting in the booth by himself, and you could just hear them just chanting CBJ in the background the entire time. And basically, anytime a single thing happens, Bobrovsky makes a save, they draw a penalty, anything, they're just like every. It's like a standing ovation. Everyone. It's just a raucous crowd, and and you can't really replicate that type of uh, intensity and, and energy artificially. It's just such as like a beautiful organic thing of playoff hockey. And so, just rewatching that, I, I it kind of had like a, a slow tear dribbling down my cheek. Just <laughs> (laughs) how beautiful playoff hockey can be.
0: I love the, this was one of the quotes I jotted down from, from Forslund. He said, the chant is simply CBJ. <laughs> just That just <laughs> so encapsulated what that crowd was all about that night. And I, I they come up to in my, my TSN turning point. So I'll save my comments for that one. Um,
1: my final what age the best, and actually I actually have more what age the best than what age the worst for this. So for people that think we're a bit too pessimistic on the video cast, <laughs> this is really why this game was so fun because there's so many beautiful things that come from it. But how both teams responded to this result in the off season that followed. Now for Columbus, maybe it was out of their hands because you know the the two high price free agents decided to walk anyway, and and, and if they could have had their wish, maybe they would have overpaid them. We're not sure about those details, but especially with Bobrovsky. But, um, you know. If, for Columbus to have this magical run and then appreciate it for what it is, but also not uh, kind of delude themselves into making some sort of crazy decisions to kind of double down and try to keep that going and instead strategically basically just turn over the keys to uh, Corpusalo and Elvis uh, for a significantly reduced price and, you know, bring in Gustav Nyquist to replicate Sixty percent of what the skiller Jamie Panarin gave them, like I I just thought that was really well done and navigated coming off of the high that they had from their first postseason success. And similar with Tampa Bay, where it's so easy after a failure like this to just talk yourself into, oh, we're you know fundamentally flawed. We need to completely change everything. (laughs) We need to get tougher, And, and they did, but they didn't pay a premium to do so. Like they bring in Pat Maroon on this discount price. They they certainly played some paid some draft capital to get um, Blake Coleman and Barkley Goodrow during the season. But that was kind of more nuanced because both guys have term on their deal and can still sort of kill penalties and actually do functional stuff beyond just being gritty. And so I love that, uh, This was such an emotionally charged postseason series for a variety of reasons, and there was so much going on, yet both teams kind of walked away with it, obviously um, with different reactions, but similarly not allowing just one postseason series to completely change the trajectory of their franchise.
0: Absolutely, and I think it it's, it was interesting we uh, Joe Smith, um, who covers the lightning, and I uh, looked at this before the two teams met um, before the season was paused and What I appreciated too is Tampa upped their to your point up their defensive play, they were more suppressive of their opponents with, again, some system stuff and really attacking zone entries against and really closing down kind of the the most dangerous areas for them in their own zone. And again, to your point, they didn't just blow everything up and go with a bunch of grinders and huge mm-hmm. defensemen. It was It was a tactical choice, little areas of focus that yielded results. And I liked to see that too. I mean, good on them for saying, how were we beat? Okay, let's bring in the right parts of that to make us more defensively strong as well.
1: Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, all right. Any other what age the best, or should we uh, flip it and get into what age the worst?
0: Uh, we can go into what age the worst. All right. What do you what
1: do you got? What do you got for this one?
0: <laughs> well, I mean, again, this this is very niche for people who follow Columbus, well, but and, and, uh, we,
1: and we should say that it's 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 tricky because we're like a year removed from it. It's not like it happened right. a decade ago, so it's 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 a bit of a different category, but yeah, go for it.
0: Yeah, I think what aged the, honestly the worst is that the, the Blue Jackets power play has been dismal for years ever since mm. Sam Gagne left and uh they went 50, they were 50% in this series and they they actually were Pretty okay against Boston as well, and I think there was this feeling that aha, they finally figured it out. And no, it was still bad Mm. (laughs) this year. So I think that that aged the worst. And I think also, of course, we—I mean, we already talked about this—but all the takes of you know this is Tampa Bay's to lose; they're going to sweep. Will Columbus even win a game? I mean, to to look back on that and something that that stings. I know some around the organization to this day is and and you you hear a little bit of this. Not so much by game four, but it is still kind of there. The onus was so much on, well, Tampa Bay's losing as Columbus figured this out and won this. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's aged poorly is really looking at what Columbus did and why it worked. I mean, there's certainly fun and joy in the Cinderella story element of it all, but there's also some really tangible hockey lessons in what they did too, um, that I think kind of gets swept under the rug.
1: Well, especially since they did lose significant talent this summer, but basically wound found a way to be successful playing like a similar structural way, right? Like they, they, they kind of right. still kept a lot of those core elements just with different names. And, and uh, yeah, so that, I think that's a great point. You know, the power play thing and the special teams thing. And so often postseason matchups do come down to this. And it was crazy because Tampa Bay had, I think, one of the best power plays we've ever seen his regular season and and we talked earlier how Columbus had been so disciplined throughout the year despite playing you know John Tortorella kind of grittier tougher hockey but it was remarkable where in game one Tampa Bay has four minutes and 52 seconds of power play time game two four Mm -hmm. minutes game three not a single second of power play time and game four Mm -hmm. just a minute and nine seconds and they score that um, point power play goal which is their only power play tally of the series but yeah that was kind of crazy to see that Tampa Bay just really couldn't get anything going there, whereas Columbus had this like five man unit. They were just flinging the puck around. It, it felt like it felt like kind of like pinball, sort of watching it. Yeah. Like it, it, maybe maybe that does lead lead lay a bit of credence to kind of this being like a bit of an a, a short sample size aberration and and the fact that they couldn't really replicate it where like the, they were getting so many wild bounces off the backboards and stuff and 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 coming to out in front to bork strand and panarin and and uh and dubois and so um yeah i mean but that was that was ultimately the difference maker i mean columbus had five power play goals in just 17 minutes of power play time in this series and they were they were killing it like tampa bay really had no solution for for what they were what they had going there but um yeah, I guess when you strip sort of a, a power play quarterback like Panera in there it maybe it makes things a little trickier to navigate.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think you know it's it I'm not going to say it was just the talent that came in too, because the power play was really bad regular
1: season yes, <laughs> before.
0: Yep. Um, but it's you know, and it's but they did they te- you described it perfectly. They found that zip, they found that puck movement that we know is essential to to getting the p- penalty kill off their assignments and getting the goaltender moving. So th- it was this is as much as we joke about earlier. You know, it's a hot goaltender or this or that. This was definitely the magic in the bottle element of it that that worked for Columbus for sure.
1: Um, this isn't specific to this game, it's kind of more of a series thing, but rewatching some of the highlights at the end of game two, Victor Hedman goes to the Columbus bench and says, You guys are up to nothing. How did that how did that wind up for you last year? And then Pierre mcguire says, He was saying that to Riley Nash, and Riley Nash's response was, I was in Boston. <laughs> so, so good. That, that was pretty funny. Um so yeah, Victor Hedman, just like me, had a bad take. But um <laughs> the other thing I had was so what really stuck out was Tampa Bay was using JT Miller as this kind of like bit player who's on the third yes. line he played 14 under 15 minutes a night through the regular season he played nine twenty in this game and he was for all intents and purposes their ninth or tenth forward this year and i get it like they were so um deep and gifted up front that it, not everyone can play the big minutes they probably their skill set would probably allow them to but it's what age the worst just because we flash forward a year and he's playing 20 minutes a night on the Canucks. He's on pace for 32 goals and 86 points. He's found this beautiful chemistry playing with Elias Pedersen. He's one of the most impactful possession players in the league. And so um, I guess that what is the, age the worst for me? Tampa Bay certainly got compensated nicely with that future first that they used to flip for Blake Coleman. But um, just looking at back at it now, it was like, wow, like JT Miller was playing such a small role considering how impactful he's been this season
0: that's a huge take. And, and to that point too, it's, you know, and this is, this was one of my, my what ifs, but what if Victor Hedman was healthy Mm, this series? Right. And, and so the choice to, and I get it, I get you want him in there, but is a broken Victor Hedman more effective than, you know, whoever you're going to bring in next. And because that's, that's who David Savard skates around in game one to score his goal. And, you know, I know that particularly in this moment, there was a lot of head scratching and, you know, they bring in McDonough and this and that, and a lot of head scratching from the Tampa side of some of the lineup choices.
1: Yeah. There's a lot of Braden Coburn. Yeah. A lot of Braden Coburn, <laughs> but listen, I mean, you're right. So headman got injured towards the end of the regular season. I think he missed the final four or five games for them right. to close the year. And then he certainly wasn't himself in game one and two and, and he doesn't play in the final two games. And and, and that's a big one, obviously Kucherov sort of losing his mind and, uh, and delivering what was a really just like indefensible hit on, um, on Marcus Nutavara there and kind of just like letting his frustration take control of it get suspended for game three. And so those are two big pieces that are the lineup for that. But I think like the craziest thing, like game three was a very close one. It was three one the game two. In hindsight, was was stunning because Columbus comes out oh. and they get this early lead and sort of back up exactly how Game One had ended, so to prove that it wasn't just this one game fluke or aberration. And and rewatching that, the craziest thing to me was just how insanely good Matt Duchesne was in that game. Where mm-hmm. um, we're going to get in, more into him when we talk about Apex Mountain, but I think he had like what four or five points in that game. But four, he was just yeah. he was creating uh, on pretty much every single shift, and, and Tampa Bay had no real answer, and the luxury to be able to have Panarin on his own line and then have Matt Duchesne come out and do that as well as sort of a, a a plan b like um game two really stuck out to me where that was the one where I just had no uh explanation for it because it was just so one side and clearly Tampa Bay at that point with Kucherov how he acted at the end of the game had no answers themselves either
0: yeah and I think you know to that to that point too another thing that just felt out of character and again misdirected energy was you know, Stamkos sucker punches Nick Foligno in game three. Mm. And, you know, to particularly when you're looking at, you know, the reputation, I believe Stamkos has and and fans have of him and what wasn't happening on the ice to do that. um, That's a guy that doesn't need that to happen to him. Right. I mean, that's that you can make better choices there.
1: Absolutely. Um, Is there uh, do you have any other what age the worst?
0: Those were mine.
1: I think one like borderline one for me was, and I get why, but t- Tampa Bay had this shift towards the end of the game where they were in the offensive zone and they kept Vasilevsky in net. And then they wind up pulling him with two thirteen left. I thought they maybe could have been a bit more aggressive there just because totally, um, totally. they had Columbus hemmed in a little bit and it had a couple good chances prior and it felt like they just yep. wasted a thirty second span there. But I guess when Columbus comes right back and scores so quickly in the empty net and then do so another three times or whatever, like maybe <laughs> uh maybe it's understandable why John Cooper like just because of the risk reward of one goal here against and that series is over, I, I understand why they were a bit more hesitant to do so, but Tampa Bay is generally considered to be a pretty uh, you know progressive and, and, and modern franchise and think about this yep. stuff and I think in hindsight maybe they would have liked to pull the goalie a little bit earlier there
0: Oh, for sure and I mean we know we know from analytics that you can pull a goaltender earlier is going to give you a better chance and the interesting underlying theme there, right is that you would think a team like Tampa Bay with six skaters in that moment with the momentum would have had an easy chance. To at least control possession if not get the goal, and if your coach isn't believing in you to do that, I mean you've already lost the game, so um there's there's a lack of a vote of confidence there, a bit too for me that because yeah, i I wrote that down here. Why not pull the goaltender earlier? <laughs>
1: mm. I guess what another what age and it kind of leads to that point of if you have six of your best skaters out there in your Tampa Bay and you can't score, then maybe you don't deserve to to win this right. game but right. um what what age the worst for me was. I remember at the time, uh, and I think kind of the narrative still when you talk about Nikita Kucherov these days is that he's kind of like this playoff choker just because he's Tampa Bay. He's considered to be Tampa Bay's best known as impactful player, and, and they haven't gotten over the hump. But he was remarkable in this game, like we have to say. it. Mm-hmm. And he struggled early in the series and then got suspended for game three. But in this game, rewatching it, it really felt like every shift him, Stamkos, and Sirelli were out there. Tampa Bay got some sort of a scoring chance. And so, yeah, if you can if you can get him added opportunities with uh with the puck out there, uh, with the game on the line, like that would have probably led to good things for Tampa Bay. So uh, those two things kind of tie in neatly for me. Here comes point, right in. He scores. Ah! Brayton Point is heard from a huge moment for the Tampa Bay Lightning. Two o eight left in the second period. We're tied. The TSN turning point. Oh yes. So this.
0: So this is um. This is the moment that you already spoke about, which was the point game tying goal. And um, I, we've had the luxury because obviously in the Columbus market, they've re-aired this series a couple times. Mm. Um, so we've gotten to watch it. And what, what I don't know that conveys, um, and you talk about you know what this meant to Columbus and it being their first series win, there has always been kind of this, oh no, the, when does the floor fall out? For this team, for this organization, when they can't get over the hump, something always gets in their way, um, and even you know with free agents leaving, that's always the narrative. And I'm sure it's for a lot of fan bases that don't haven't found their way to a winning, you know, consecutive wins or a Stanley Cup or what have you. Mm-hmm. And when Point scores that goal, what happened was uh, instead of, and we've all been in arenas, the arena kind of sucks itself in, right? You go, oh yep. no. Everyone point scores and every single person in that arena stands up and starts cheering. And it was the most insane sense of like, we know we've got this. Um, it's really hard to describe. And then as you said already, 54 seconds later, the Blue Jackets go down and score on a delayed penalty. Bjorkstrand puts the puck in the net. That moment Was probably the coolest sport moment I've been a part of because the energy of it, the volume of it, the reaction by the team in that moment with the crowd support, that's probably going to go down in my top 10 experiences in terms of covering the game.
1: Well, there is such a human element of like, oh, if you've been burned times before, regardless of what, what it is, it's like, oh, here we go again. And uh, it's understandable that you would feel that way as a Blue Jackets fan. So that's, that's pretty cool that, uh, that that happened. I mean, this game was was filled with turning points. I think that's what made it such a a rewatchable and entertaining game. There was certain things that I'd kind of forgotten as well. Like,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, Columbus goes up 3-1 and they eventually do wind up actually holding a 3-1 lead. But um, the first time they go up 3-1, John Cooper challenges an offside with Zach, yep. Zach Wierenski. And they wind up it's so close. Like I, I'm mm-hmm. actually a bit surprised in hindsight that they overturned it because there's very few definitive angles that the puck actually was out and the goal and the call on the ice was that it was a good goal. Um but they get wind up getting it overturned. And John Cooper has this like weird kind of reaction of like celebrating by just yelling at everyone on the bench to get it going. <laughs> and then Pierre Maguire doubles down and has an even weirder reaction to John Cooper's weird reaction of <laughs> get like, get into it, man. Yeah. He of says. like berating him for being emotionless, <laughs> which is kind of a, a weird take to have. But um, so that was a, a turning point. You know, there were times actually where Vasilevsky struggled throughout the series and clearly was the second best goalie, but. He kept them in it with a couple big sort of mm-hmm. typical Vasilevsky athletic uh, sticking his leg out and kind of making an unpre- unpredictable save to keep Tampa Bay in it before point tied it. But, yeah, I mean, that it has to be that sequence of especially point-scoring such a it was like such a tampa bay lightning goal too where it's on the power play it's this beautiful display of skill where I, i think kucherov brings it into the offensive zone he flips it over to stamkos two defenders go to stamkos he somehow threads the needle to point and then he makes this ridiculous deke and then goes backhand top shelf basically and you're thinking that's the tampa bay lightning we know and love and they're gonna get this figured out and then for Columbus to score on literally the next shift right after, it was just stunning. I remember when when Bjorkstrand scored that in the celebration after, I just, I just, I just kind of couldn't believe that it was happening. But that was finally the moment where it felt like, okay, maybe Tampa Bay really isn't going to figure this thing out.
0: Yeah, I, it, you know, it was, and then from there, you know, as all good goaltenders do, you know, Bob basically yep. shuts it down. He has two huge stops um, in the final five minutes on Stamkos and then on Paquette too. And I think that. Um, like I said the energy around that moment the response of that moment cuz it you know again the narrative around the blue jackets was their strength was Panarin hopefully bob and their penalty kill and Tampa Bay had just broken their penalty kill that was the first time and you know this all could have completely flipped and for Columbus to to stand their ground and score um just it it, it was really it it's as close as I think Columbus has gotten to a storybook moment um in their history so far
1: well and you know I'm glad that this happened because it made for such an entertaining game. But it felt like this one really could get out of hand quickly, where Columbus came out on fire and they're up two nothing less than five minutes yep. in. And, and Pierre Rogar yeah, was talking about how everyone on the Lightning bench has this thousand yards there and they're completely checked out. And the fact that they were actually able to claw back and make it three three, considering all of the um, you know obstacles that were in front of them and the raucous crowd and everything, um, you know, credit to them for actually. Uh, making a game of this and not just completely mm-hmm. uh, folding the way they probably could have. So I think we, 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 did, I think we basically covered the most rewatchable moment. It was, it was that sort of the point goal. And then the, yep. the, uh, the Brooks goal <laughs> goal right after. So we can, we can skip that. Let's do the biggest heat check. Who was like the player that um, really stuck out to you and rewatching where you're like, Oh, I can't, I kind of not forgot. Cause it happened so recently, but um, the end of the player that had the most unpredictable uh, impact on this game.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, you, there were so many, obviously, when a series goes like this, there are so many guys you can mm-hmm. single out. But as, as I rewatched this and, and thought back to the series as a whole, you know, David Savard was just, I mean, this is a guy who's usually second pair, penalty kill, a big physical guy. He comes out and scores that goal in game one, and then he just completely turned up his game um, for this series for this postseason. Um, he, it's funny, he came from the queue, right? So he comes in mm-hmm. being known as this offensive defenseman and then comes and is just basically meant to be a shutdown guy. But he was he was all over the place. He And particularly when you look at what happened to the Blue Jackets defense, I mean, they come into this playoff without three guys on the blue line that they thought would be playing. Ryan Murray... Marcus Nudevara goes out after he gets hit, and uh, Adam McQuaid, who was playing actually quite well for the Blue Jackets, is out with a concussion at the time. So for Savard to help anchor that defense down behind Seth Jones and Zach Wierenski, um, he, he's one that—and I think unsung is the perfect word for it, right? Because you don't talk about it a lot, but he was a huge part of this for the, for the Blue Jackets.
1: led the team in ice time in this game, too, I believe. So um, yeah, he was he was relied crazy. upon quite a bit. And, and and his partner in this game, Dean Kukan, was had a quite a game as well. He was flying out there and uh yeah, you're right. It, it, the, this Blue Jacket seems certainly you think of when you think of their defense, you think of Seth Jones and you think of Zach Rensky, but uh, you know, nudevar wasn't playing in this game because of the injury, but uh, had like him this year and, and, and all these guys, um, they have quite a bit of depth there. For me, it was Alex Texier, where mm. he scores the first goal on that beautiful power play uh tally, kind of wrister from the circle. But his story as well, I think uh, I had yeah. really high expectations for him this year and because of injuries and just because Columbus wasn't this sort of offensively dominant team, maybe he uh, underdelivered a little bit in terms of just my sky-high preseason expectations where I thought he could really be um, a, a, a candidate for Rookie of the Year this season. But um, him coming to America as a teenager from the, from the French League, um, he's a second-round pick in 2017. He goes, he dominates the Finnish League. And then as soon as the finish league season ends and he led his team in scoring as a teenager, he gets seven AHL games under his belt, scores five goals, plays in the final two regular season games just to kind of get his feet wet in the NHL, scores a goal, and then jumps right into the playoffs. And they're talking in this game where people were wondering whether he should even be playing, whether right, Portobello right. should be going with a more sort of veteran uh, experience in that in that spot. But he's playing a key role here with Anderson and Flino on the third line and on the power play. and And he scores two goals in this game. So... I thought he was a, a nice little heat check candidate here for me.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's a solid choice. I I probably have the the detriment of of studying him too hard now for the the past season as well, yeah. right? So I, you know, I could see, and and this is certainly not a ding on him. He was outstanding in this series, particularly under the circumstances. You know, you could still see the things that he had to continue to work on through this past season. But yeah, I mean, and what, what cracks me up too is he scores that second empty net goal and you can tell he's still jacked because it's like his third NHL score of his career. But the team's, ne- now it's like embarrassing. So he kind of goes to celebrate and then he's like, oh, maybe I should just be <laughs> <laughs> quiet about this. But yeah, an outstanding debut by him.
1: I love it. Uh, biggest that guy. <laughs> Do you want me to give you mine?
0: Yeah, mine are kind of sad and depressing.
1: <laughs> uh, Adam Clendenning for me um because i'm a huge adam clinton fan i remember i remember just back in the day like he's a second round pick he basically puts up huge offensive numbers everywhere he's played in the ncaa and the ahl he it's crazy that he's still only 27 years old because he's played for i think seven nhl teams and he's never played multiple seasons with one nhl team he's basically just every single year moved along he's played at Nearly 400 AHL games for his career. He's bounced around, but he makes these two brilliant passes on the second goal, where one is mm-hmm. like kind of an intentional bank pass off the backboards, and then he threads a needle cross seam for a tap in or leading to a tap in on the uh, on the second try. And you sort of see that like beautiful puck moving ability that you thought you were going to get with him when he was putting up these huge offensive numbers in the lower levels. But for whatever reason, uh, there's certain guys like that where those. Th- those traits just don't translate to the next level. And he's never been able to have a sustained uh, NHL run with a team. And I don't know what the explanation is, but it just hasn't happened for him. And if you would have told me, uh, you know, five, six years ago, that was going to be the case. I wouldn't have believed you because I thought he had a really bright future in the league.
0: Yeah. And particularly this season, I mean, Columbus was besieged by injuries and he did not, he got called up, but never saw a second of ice time. um, Which again, you know, you, you, perform like he did particularly in those playoffs and then not to get a sniff. It's, it's, it's a strange, it's a strange one, but that's, yeah. that's definitely a, that's a good call. My minor, yeah. minor, are, mine are a little bit more depressing from a Columbus <laughs> perspective. Um, right. Uh, first. And this is more on the series as a whole. Um, but it, Josh Anderson basically did not play this year for all yes. intents and purposes right. due to injury. Um, and to see how dominant he was, in this series that I was just kind of, I, I was sitting here with my husband and I just looked, I'm like, my God, was Josh Anderson just impressive in this postseason?" Um, so, so that was a guy that stood out and, and Brandon Dubinsky too, for me, um, cause we haven't seen him literally since the preseason. So, um, those two and, and you know, th- and this might've been, been, a aged badly as well, but you know, Ryan Zingle, um, mm-hmm. perhaps, yep. perhaps the only thing that fizzled, um, in all the decisions that the Blue Jackets made. And, and I don't know that he's necessarily blown the doors off in Carolina either, but, uh, he, they showed him late in the game before a face off. And I was like, Oh, Oh yeah. Ryan Zingle was out there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Um, yeah, with Josh Anderson, I had him for Apex mountain, the tr- Josh Anderson's yep. trade value. Yep. Cause at this time, like, I mean, he's flying in this game in this series, he has 27 goals this year. Yeah, this year, just a season from he plays 26 games as the one goal shoots 1.6%. And he's in this weird spot. There's so many um, you know, more impactful things to consider in terms of when the league, when the season, when the NHL is going to come back and what's going to happen with the CPA and how much money there is going to be and how they're going to figure all that out. But for him, he's an RFA, but I think he's entering his last year of RFA. And right. yep. um, he had kind of contentious reported uh negotiations with the team the last time and he, he wound up signing his deal into october at the time and he was underpaid and and i think he certainly is going to look to um recoup some of that money at some point but he has basically no leverage at this point and it's just such a it's such a weird uh he was a heavy, like, highly talked about name in, uh around the trade deadline in terms of potential uh guy who could be moved but it's just so tough to figure out both with his health, where he's at right now, especially considering the circumstances, but also what's going to happen, what his future holds, how much he's going to get paid. And it's it's kind of a strange spot for him to be in. But in this game, I mean, he has that one shorthanded play where you just like see yep. that net net drive and he literally takes the net off and yep. uh, he similarly scored a shorthanded goal that, that was huge in that rally in game one. And so, yeah, it's kind of the, the past year. It certainly didn't go the way you would have thought of based on how he was playing in this series
0: yeah i mean then that's you know you see it even in this game i mean he he was doing it all series but his his role on the four check and then you know he does he has that huge shorthanded chance even in the second period with just over three minutes to go in game four i mean and that's he he and cam atkinson are what make that power kill that Mm -hmm. aggressive offensively minded penalty kill sing and so to watch to watch them be at the height of their powers i was just like oh yeah (laughs) yeah yeah those guys.
1: Um i'm glad you brought up dubinsky because my biggest that guys were ryan callahan and brandon dubinsky because there's this like <laughs> there's this late 2000s early 2010s yep. rangers symmetry there and yep. they're both fourth liners in this one neither guy played this year you know callahan's not not going to play anymore dubinsky will still see what the future holds for him he still has one year left on his deal but um yeah and callahan only played in the final two games of the series and wasn't really it wasn't really a factor he was a clearly laboring physically but um yeah you know both guys were so fun to watch earlier in their career and then it's kind of sad to to watch at this point it's kind of like reminds you that father time is undefeated but especially uh it's a kind of a cautionary tale for players who play that more physical brand of hockey how it can take its toll on your body absolutely um okay doc and eddie's commentary corner i think this (laughs) i have the most notes in this category that i have of any for this podcast so uh the listeners should strap in this is gonna be a it's gonna be a long one but um yeah so we did the NBC feed with john ford's and pierre maguire we've already alluded to some classic maguire comments i thought the one <laughs> when you get to this point of a series it's not an analytic sport it's a character yeah. sport yeah it's a classic one pierre has his volume and energy cranked up on this one to, Oh my goodness i don't know what ma- like what level it is but it's beyond maximum where i didn't know a human being could make that type of noise but i think you know part of it is and i guess i think it's a testament to the columbus crowd where i think he literally has to yell because he can't hear a single thing because the crowd behind right. him is so loud so he's just like he's yelling to try to match it and i, I will say it adds to the theatrical experience of this game i, I think uh, a more subdued commentator might not uh lend itself to this because it was just such a crazy experience and I think it's, it's a nice little ta- time capsule of where we're at at this point.
0: Oh, yeah. And the, you, know, you mentioned this already, but I was just laughing when, when Cooper challenges that power play goal by Cam Atkinson for offsides, and Pierre is losing his mind. And he, yeah. he literally yells, get into it, man. It, it, I mean, it's, he was, but it was true because you know, that was that energy that was lacking around Tampa the entire time. And so to finally see anything from that bench. Was just insane, but I think Pierre was like ready to like get out of his skin. He was so jacked up, um, and I had from him too. Classic Pierre, trench work, heavy shifts. Both mm-hmm. teams were doing that. According, he loved that. Um, he had that the Tampa Bay can't get through the structure. Like that cracked me up for some reason. And hey, go,
1: go ahead. No, you go for it.
0: <laughs> My favorite though, and we talked about this at, uh, off the start is towards the end of the game he finally says it's a credit to the adjustments by John Tortorella. I'm like John Tortorella didn't make hardly any adjustments here. I don't know what you're talking about. But that that was why the Blue Jackets won the game, won the series.
1: I love it. I uh yeah, I think it was it was early on. He goes um Tampa Bay can't figure out this forecheck. They're going to get pile driven tonight. Like he's like so Adamant. I mean, it's he, and and he has this moment where um, you know, Boone Jenner has this like zone entry and then kinda like a, a shot from the perimeter, but it's a tricky <laughs> shot that Vasilevsky barely fights off and he goes, that oh, yeah. was a w that was a that was a one on two there. Why would they let him gain the line? Step up. Like he's like he's like just he's yelling at the lightning. Like I love it because so often the criticism of Pierre is like he has these um, you know, bonds with people in the game and so he never wants to kinda hurt anyone's feelings. Right. And so instead he's just citing all these irrelevant stats. But in this game, he's like he's really going after the lightning. It's 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 kind of it's kind of startling to watch. I mean, he yeah, was really yeah. just letting them have it. If Tampa doesn't figure out this forecheck check quick, they're gonna get pile driven tonight. They have no answer for the Columbus four check. Look at Columbus, they're coming 200 feet. A great short side shoot in by Riley Knox. Create a foot race situation. That's a one-off, two. No communication between Chernack and McDonough. Panarin keeps the play alive. Back to the point. Boom. Shot on goal. That's not good enough from Tampa. Not nearly good enough. They knew the adjustments they had to make.
0: And I will, as much as we pick on Pierre, deservedly, (laughs) I will give it to him because after Panarin scores that empty netter that basically seals the series. His quote, I actually did think, encapsulated how this, why this whole thing went down the way it did. And and he says, Columbus had the will, Panarin had the skill, mm-hmm. and I think, and that's why Panarin was so important to Columbus. And I, that quote, for all the other stuff that Pierre says, I do think he nailed it with that one.
1: We're being too positive. He, <laughs> let's let, let's bring us back to reality here. He has a sequence where, and I I forgot this one. I remember I tweeted at the time. And it was just so good, but he goes, people forget Ryan Callahan had 50 goals playing in junior for the Guelph Storm. Now, for context, he's talking about a 20 year, 21 year old overager at the time, and this was in 2005. Like it's it's such a it's such a hilarious blend of an outdated stat that doesn't have context, but it's like Major Junior, and it's. It's great. I love it. It's, it's somehow supposed to convince us that Ryan Callahan at this point of his career is actually more skilled than we're giving him credit for.
0: Yeah. Well, and then he says, to your point of like, just trying to will Tampa Bay to win. And, and Vasilevsky was so good in this game. Mm-hmm. And he says, don't forget the Vas- Vasilevsky saves. And Forsen goes, we won't.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're going you're gonna to remind us. I, I mean, on a related <laughs> note, I don't think I ever want to hear him say that one had some odor on it ever again. <laughs> There's something about it that is just – it's such an off-putting way to say that it was a bad goal. But, yeah, no, this was – I mean, it was a good commentary commentary crew because, obviously, Forslund is one of the best in the game. But we I talked know. about Pierre's energy, and, and, and they kind of – they had a nice little rapport here as well. I, I felt like they were kind of, like, feeding off of each other. And, uh, you know, at one point, um, Forslund makes a comment or, – or Pierre makes a comment uh, about how, like, they're talking about – historical upsets or whatever and they're talking about like a game a series from like the early 1900s or something and then pierre says oh like you you called that one didn't you john and then john goes back and, and says oh it was a tryout and i didn't get my real shot until the 90s or something or i had to pay my dues and then they, they had like a fun little rapport there as well it was a it was a nice little like, john's great as being kind of like a, a straight man where he's just calling the game but he also has a bit of charm and fun to him and whereas pierre is just like completely uh going it with his pierre stick
0: and and I'm all, and I I'll give this to Forslund too because I I'm always a fan of this in key moments you know Forslund basically shuts it down for the final yeah. 35 seconds he yes. says let's just take it in and even more credit to him because there is an empty net goal after that and he he calls it but then is quiet again and I just I love when significant moments Happen that way, uh, even like you said. Now that we know we may not have crowd experiences for for quite some time, I, I thought that was really neat. Particularly when it got upended by there being something happening in the game, I I, I appreciated that he and Pierre both handled it that way.
1: Absolutely, yes. Yeah, so just there's something to be said for just letting uh letting the action kind of speak for itself and letting it marinate. Um, most unanswerable questions.
0: Ooh, well, I, I, shared, I shared a couple of mine already. Mm-hmm. What if there had been a game five? You know, I, I, right. again, Tampa Bay could have come back. Um, what if Hedman's healthy? Uh, that, that could have been a game changer. That, does that Savard go- goal happen? Does he even try that move? I don't know. Um, but but my, my biggest what if, my, my unanswerable is, what if Panarin had stayed? What if, what if this series and the team doing what it did had swayed any of those free agents? Um, and mm-hmm. Panarin being the key one for me because I think you know it, this team needs offense as it's built right now. Uh, Panarin's obviously a game changer; he's elite. Um, they need someone like that now. And what if he had stayed? What if this had changed one of those players' minds?
1: Especially with the year Panarin had this year for the Rangers, where for sure uh, deserved to be in the hard conversation. Um, my, th- it's kind of the opposite, I guess, in a way. But mm. how close? was Yarmo to going the other direction
0: and Mm. trading
1: Panarin and or Bobrovsky leading up to the deadline instead.
0: That's Um, a good one.
1: You know, we're never going to know that for sure, I think. I think it's a a fascinating question. And, and, you know, you look at it because we kind of forget now, I guess, but I was looking back at it. And so the final week of the season, there's two wildcard spots up for grabs. And Montreal, Carolina, and Columbus all have played 80 games. They have two each left. And they're all right there with 94, 95 points. And Columbus winds up winning out. They beat the Rangers and the Sens in the final weekend. And that Rangers game in particular was highly sketchy because Butchnevich (laughs) ties it up late and then they wound up winning in shootout. But, you know, that certainly could have. That's a great sort of what if where that certainly could have played out differently potentially in those final two games. And imagine if this team misses the playoffs not only do we miss out on this entire series obviously but it winds up being this like highly talked about um sort of colossal mistake by by yarmo where he trades a bunch of assets uh, keeps these two high price free agents trades a bunch of future assets for matt Duchesne and ryan dezingle and doesn't make the playoffs and, and it becomes it becomes this whole other historical anecdote for an entirely different reason so i think that's a great what if
0: yeah, I absolutely agree. And I, you know, I was thinking too, particularly at the trade deadline this year, you know, what if other teams had bought into the approach? What if mm-hmm. another GM had just said, you know what, we're going for it. I, I would have loved, you know, we talk about trends that take off for the wrong reasons in this league all the time. I, just for the sheer sport of it and the spectacle of it, I would have loved for another organization to say, you know what, we're going to try it too.
1: Yep. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm all for that. Um I have another one. So it's about Tampa Bay. Um, it's part A, like how and when will they get over the hump? I think <laughs> yeah. it's unfortunate for them. Uh, obviously, the history of you know back-to-back Game Seven Eastern Conference losses, the Pittsburgh and Washington, then this collapse before the the quarantine. They were, for my money, the best team in the league, and I would have had them as a favorite again heading into the postseason. And they might. You can make a case they're the team that's kind of the most, the hardest hit. By this uncertainty. They're gonna get stamped mm-hmm. goes back if if the games ever resume. But the potential ramifications of flat cap, um yep. and not in going up the way they thought it would, you know, contract decisions, they have to pay Sorelli and Sergachev. We don't know when the draft is gonna be, and we all assume that they would make a couple uh, you know, trades at the tra- at the draft for picks similar to what they did with JT Miller last year, where they would trade a couple guys and clear up that money and so there's so much uncertainty hanging around them. And then, and then part B to that is when do the Lightning reach that sort of Washington Capitals point of us just being like, this team and organization has been through so much that we all kind of want to see them win in a way just because yep, it's like yep. anyone that has an ounce of mercy in their heart is like, they've been through so much already. They deserve <laughs> this. Like Historically, they're, they're an important team in the grand scheme of things for the NHL they deserve a title. And I think the Capitals certainly reached, that. I think everyone other than maybe, I guess, Penguins fans and, and, and Golden Knights <laughs> fans were happy when Ovechkin won the cup, finally lifted it, had his celebrations after that summer. Right. And I wonder if the lightning, maybe they already are at that point, And if they're not, when that's going to happen.
0: Yeah. I mean, you know, these are, these are the teams that you talk about 10, 20 years from now, the best teams never to win a cup, right? Yeah. Potentially. Right. And that's, it, it, it's one of the big things about this season. I'm with you. I mean, how many, how many last games have we seen? How many last performances as a team have we seen if, if this season doesn't resume and it will be insane if, if this core, this Tampa Bay core doesn't come away with a championship because they, I mean, even this year, last year, they've been on the cusp and they've been one of the most talented. They've been on the cusp rightly so for, for so long. Um, it, it, if they don't, it's going to be very, very interesting.
1: Well, yeah. And it's like, how do we remember these historically great teams? Like a great example of this is in basketball with, with the Warriors when they had that 73-win season and then they lose and blow uh, the lead to the Cavs in the final. Similar to this, like for all intents and purposes, this Lightning team should be remembered as one of the most dominant teams ever. You've got Kucherov, 128 points. He has of, right. uh, 164 of 171 first place hard votes and no one even questions it. Uh, Vasilevsky. Wins the Vesna, uh, John Cooper finishes second in Jack Adams voting. Hedman finishes third in Norris voting. They have three forty goal scorers, sixty two regular season wins. I mean, all of it is just unheard of, and ultimately they're going to wind up being remembered for one bad week of hockey, and that's yep, it's yep. that's kind of crazy to think about.
0: Absolutely, it, it it is. I mean, and that's as much as it's it's that. I mean, this is what Columbus will hang their hat on for. Hopefully they're they're bound for better things. I'm sure the organization wants this not to be (laughs) the biggest accomplishment, but but it will be. I mean, Columbus fans are never gonna let Tampa Bay fans forget it, that's for sure.
1: Yep. Um okay, here's one one final unanswerable question. Maybe it is answerable, but just um why aren't Seth Jones's underlying numbers as elite (sighs) as we clearly see him to be just watching him, but also if you break it down on a more uh, you know, individual level in terms of individual skills with under with micro stats and with tracking, he comes out as one of the best defense in the league. I think he should have been a Norris finalist two years ago. But yes. since then, there's been this kind of strange divide where he's not a bad player by any means, but it's not nearly as elite as you would think it would be based on how I think we generally think of him as being like one of the best, whatever, 25 and under defensemen in the league.
0: This is such a good question. I, you know, I, I do think, it, and you saw it, I think there are some numbers that can point to what makes him so good. And this goes back to the original discussion we had about, are we are we truly getting good comprehensive measures to measure any player, regardless of position, but particularly defensive players? Um, there's a couple wrinkles there. His, his transition stats, particularly for this team while he's been a part of it, are top notch. Um, and you saw that when he went down with injury that was when the Blue Jackets, the whole transition game fell apart for them. So he's got the transition stats. He's got good retrieval stats. He's huge on the blue line, keeping the puck in. Um, Coach Brad Shaw, has, he's, he had developed this before Seth Jones came to the Blue Jackets, but he has a tool he calls the puck touch sheet. And Seth Jones continually is off the charts in those measures and how he calculates that. So I think there are some things that we're looking at excuse me, that we're not looking at because we're not able to quickly all the time that might lend itself to a deeper discussion there. And I also think it comes down to his role. He plays with Zach Wierenski. Zach Wierenski is one of the most offensively minded defensemen in the league. And Seth, and this isn't, he says this not in a bad way, but if Zach's going to jump, Seth is going to stay back. And so Seth is going to happily accept a more defensively responsible type of play um and you see it when he doesn't when he's sick of things there were a couple times this season where he was just like you know what screw it i'm gonna score the goal because nobody else is um you see him turn it on but i think it's also in part the role that he is accepting for himself to ensure that the team as a whole um will succeed on the ice
1: that's really well said um yeah, this—I mean, this could be an entire podcast of its own. So oh, we're yeah. Not, we're, I, I, I didn't mean to uh, open up a whole can of worms, but it's such a—it's such an interesting uh, conversation because I think we'd all agree that he's an amazing player and and does oh. so many things well. But it's—it's it's one of those, and this is this is the beauty of of um, having different metrics to look at and have these conversations rather than just being like oh this player sucks and he has bad numbers everyone agrees right. Or this player is great and has great numbers so everyone agrees on that like it's it's good to make you think about why certain things are are happening and sort of what goes into uh our player evaluation um apex mountain yes i'm gonna comfortably say there's no one on tampa bay that is on the apex <laughs> know, in this well, series it's like, easy for that um, side <laughs> but uh let's let, let's rattle through columbus uh who do you have as like your most obvious apex mountain players or or it, management people or coaches
0: oh that's a good one I didn't mm. think of that uh, mm. my most um my apex guys that I listed you mentioned one of them Matt Duchesne yep. um we talked about Josh Anderson uh we talked about David Savard and I also had here um particularly again it hasn't been a long time but it's it's been a year uh Sergei Bobrovsky I mm-hmm. thought he was Excellent. I thought he turned a corner that was important for him from a narrative from a career perspective. Um and he struggled since. And there's a million reasons for that besides just him. <laughs> but uh those were the four I had on my Apex list.
1: Yeah, Matthew Shane, um, you know, he comes into this with the worst possible rep in terms of <laughs> Columbus uh Colorado after he leaves becomes yep. this like up and coming, exciting team. They hand over the keys to Nathan McKinnon, they never look back. Ottawa, when he arrives, completely falls apart, becomes the laughingstock of the league. They wind up having to reconcile the fact that they traded a future unprotected first for him. And then he comes to Columbus and he has four goals and 12 points in 23 games in the regular season with the Blue Jackets. And for him to rattle off a stretch here in the final three games where he has three goals and seven points just dominates. He's the best player on the ice in game two, which is, as we alluded to, a pivotal game in this series. And he winds up getting paid $56 million by the predators <laughs> for it. So I think Matt <laughs> Duchesne is clearly at his absolute apex. I think the Bobrovsky one is more nuanced because he's won multiple. Well, for sure. Th- right. Veznas deservedly. And I think he's been a better goalie than he was at this point. But for him to bounce back after a shaky start to the year where there's all these questions about him being in a contract year and what's going to happen and he's 31 and whenever a player is at that age and their performance dips you start thinking whether their best days are behind them and he rattles off a stretch in after the All-Star break here where 26 games, 930 save percentage, 7 shutouts and then he has a 925 save percentage in 10 playoff games here and he gets rid of a lot of sort of playoff demons where in a very small sample size, he had never been able to get the job done for his teams dating back to his limited time with the flyers. So, um, and he obviously similarly got paid as well by the, uh, by the Panthers, but yeah, he was awesome in this series, especially if you just remove that first period of game one, where I think there was a lot of jitters and I don't really know what was going on. He was on top of his game for the rest of the series. And, and I think, he's a really good candidate for apex mountain here um columbus is a franchise the blue jackets yep
0: yep, yep. Uh, good call
1: you know zero playoff series wins in franchise history and then they they get this done i have um i think john tortorella is an interesting one here because he's won two jack adams trophies and he won his cup in 04 but this feels like this sort of I wonder if this is honestly the, the job he's the most proud of if you gave him truth serum and you talked to him because he comes from this place where we you and I have talked about this on the show before where things go so poorly during his one year in Vancouver and then he takes a year off and he's kind of uh, a, a joke in hockey circles where things went right. so poorly and you're wondering whether the game has passed him by whether he can adapt whether um, he's got another run in him. And I remember at the time, and, and I'll completely confess to being wrong on this one, when they hired a midseason in 2015 or whatever, I, I thought it was a pretty uninspired choice. And I thought it was a classic example of the NHL just sort of recycling, uh, coaches and, and not trying something new. And instead, he comes in with this like fresh, uh, energy. He, um, He certainly can can, can be grumpy at times and and have that sort of a a John Tortorella fire to him to to become a trademark, but he also gets this team to buy in. They're clearly undermanned and playing again the underdog role, but they're just playing so fast. They're playing um, such a tough kind of swarming brand of hockey, and I thought it was a remarkable job. So I, I know it's crazy to say about a coach who has had the success he's had. He has whatever nearly 700 NHL wins to his name but this was one of his finest jobs i thought considering all the circumstances
0: yeah i i think it's a, it's a solid solid call and i would only not put this as his apex because i think he's arguably more proud of this season to date right. yes. uh given then i mean look this this series win was amazing and incredible and all the narratives of his former team and so on and so forth but he has said how proud he is of, of this year's group when everyone counted them out, when, you know, quote unquote, the skilled, all the skill leaves, then they have 420 man games lost to injury this year. And, and he, he's, I mean, I, I granted it's the team I cover, but he's my pick for the Jack Adams this season as well. And, um, but, but I think, you know, it, you, there's a shot to of him on the bench when after Panarin's, uh, goal. And you can just see how proud he is. Um, and he wanted it for his team. And I think for him to see that um, said volumes about just what that whole moment and what had led up to that moment meant for him last year, for sure.
1: Yep. That's certainly the case. And and it's it's funny because I remember when I had you on earlier, we were talking about their success this season, and I kind of lumped uh, this series and then what happened this year into one and kind of this sure. whole apex for him. But even if you look at the underlying numbers of this series, where it was so close, um you know, the expected goals for were 10 8 for Columbus, the actual goals were 19 8, but a lot of that is just the empty netters okay. they scored. But right. basically, if you look at like the unblocked shot attempts, Tampa Bay looks much better. Then you look at the mm-hmm. attempts that actually made it through, it's closer you look at the shots on goal that actually made it through it's closer. And then you look at the high (laughs) danger attempts and they're almost like 50, 50. It's like, that is exactly what we talked about where this, with this system where, um, they're not necessarily just sitting back and blocking shots in your uh, conventional defensive approach, but they're in a much more aggressive way, accomplishing a similar result where they're clearly trying, uh, to get certain shots for and against and they've executed it perfectly both in this series and the success they had this season so i think it's a it's kind of a a trademark job that tortorella did in the grand scheme of things
0: i'm going to clip that quote because you just said it perfectly i agree (laughs) 100 percent
1: but he makes the play right over to panarin and panarin says thanks for coming the friend man delivers in columbus Look at that reaction, John
0: Tortorella's coaching staff. The Columbus Blue Jackets, with 153
1: on the clock, have a 5-3 lead, with a chance to march on tonight for the first time in franchise history. Okay, let's do who who won the game. This is a tough one because there's obviously it's such a such a kind of a team effort, right? Like we've talked about so right. many different contributors. It's really tough to single out one. But when you think about this and the accomplishment of winning this series and, and, and sweeping the lightning, uh, who won the, who won the game for you?
0: So when I, when I got to this one, I tried to not mention people we'd already talked about.
1: Mm -hmm. Um,
0: and so this is where I put Columbus. Um, as opposed to on Apex mountain, I, I put Columbus here. I thought that the organization won, the city won, the fans won, um, and then at, at a player level i again i didn 't want to remention uh, someone else. Oliver Bjorkstrand was a runner up here. Um, but this is where I really categorized alexander texier 's game mm-hmm. um, because I think you know for all the things we already talked about, his performance, the experience of it getting that trust and confidence from the entire organization really um and using that to come we you know covering this team and then seeing him over the summer and then seeing him this past season you really saw an evolution in him as both a player on on the ice and a person off the ice and i think that this was just such a huge launching pad for him that if i have to pick one who i haven't already mentioned <laughs> i will pick him
1: it's a good one. I had Yarmo kick a line in for this one just because um, he really, like they reached this crossroads heading up to the traded line. And you're wondering which way they're going to go. It's such a tough decision. It could go so horribly wrong as we talked about If They miss the playoffs and he just stares down the barrel of gun basically and just not only keeps Panarin and Bobrovsky, which is risky, but then doubles down and trades a bunch of picks for guys who wind up, mostly Matthew Shane, but play such a pivotal role in this Uh and obviously it's motivated by the fact that they hadn't had the playoff success and they were so close that you kind of had to go for it. Otherwise, what kind of message are you sending to your fan base? But they executed it perfectly and it wound up working out. And hopefully it does lead to more, uh, sort of similar copycat, uh, aggressive moves by GMs in the years to come. So I thought for him, uh, to execute this was, was world class and, uh, he did a masterful job. And, and for him, um, I think the most, the biggest accolade for him is that he's, uh, he's won the uh, he's won this game for the pdo cast so um, <laughs> yeah it's uh no this was a fun one i'm really glad we got to do this i mean it was i'm sure lightning fans won't want to rewatch this but <laughs> it's just it's it's a really entertaining game there's so much happening beyond uh, just the final score line like it, it, there's so many twists and turns i highly recommend anyone that hasn't really watched it or rewatched it or thought about it since to uh, take a 2 hours out of the day to to go back and uh, to go back and watch it at some point
0: absolutely it was even even as someone who covered it and and watched it taking you know watching it you know knowing what we were going to look for and and really see what stood out what were turning points it was really fun for me too to to take it in and in a weird way almost as an even more unbiased observer if that makes sense but just to to see how this all went down it it was cool and i think it's, it's one of those moments that makes hockey the game that we love and uh Even Lightning fans, maybe, with time, can enjoy it a little bit.
1: Maybe. (laughs) I think think similar to Capitals fans, once they finally get over the hump, hopefully, and win a cup, they can go back and kind of remember uh, the dues they paid to get there. Um, Allison, this was a blast. You're the best, as always. Plug some stuff, because I know you've been hard at work and been keeping really busy during this quarantine.
0: (laughs) Well, this has been a blast, too. Thank you for having me. Um, You can find me on Twitter at... Allison L. Um, All my work gets posted there. I'm also part of the Too Many Men podcast, um, which you can find at two underscore much underscore man on Twitter. um, And we try and post weekly. And then during this quarantine time, I'm proud to be working with Megan Cheka, and we put on weekly hockey analytics night in Canada, where we focus on different uh, hockey topics. We've even started to branch out to other sports um, to learn things from those sports that we can apply to hockey. And you can follow that on Twitter under the hashtag H-A-N-I-C
1: beautiful. Well, thanks for all the hard work. Thanks for keeping us uh, entertained and educated during these tricky times. And um this was a blast. We'll hopefully uh, get to do something again soon down the road. So, uh yeah. Uh thanks for chatting and let's uh let's have you on the podcast again at some point here down the road.
0: Sounds good. And this is great. This is awesome content you're putting out and keeping us all entertained. So, thank you for all the hard work you're doing.
1: Cheers, awesome. Just wanted to thank everyone for listening to today's show and To remind you that it would be really appreciated if you could go take a minute to leave the podcast a rating and review. It goes a long way these days and means a lot both personally to me, but also um, to the health and status of the show moving forward. So, hopefully, you're enjoying these rewatchables and hopefully, they're providing a nice little welcome distraction. I know that uh, some of you aren't particularly keen on rewatching old games that you know the results to, but I promise you, especially with these games that we've been kind of strategically picking for the show. Uh, We're doing so because there is so many little hidden nuggets that you probably didn't really notice on the first go around that you'll really appreciate rewatching it. So whether you go back and actually watch the full broadcast on NHL TV like Alice and I talked about or just skim through the highlights on YouTube, um, I'm sure you'll enjoy it. And I'm sure there's going to be some stuff you didn't notice before that you'll really appreciate now. For those of you who wanted to get ahead for the next rewatchables and prepare for what we're going to be doing moving forward, uh, we've currently got Game 3 of the 2018 series between the Jets and the Predators scheduled for next week. So we've got that to look forward to, and we're going to keep doing these rewatchables uh, for the foreseeable future. So if you've got any recommendations for games you'd like for us to do, um, we'll definitely take that into account. I've got some fun ones planned ahead, but um, you know we can never have too many uh, options. And, and keep in mind that we're going to be trying to do games that are typically more modern uh mostly just because some of the older games especially uh, with the copies that are up on youtube don't really uh make for good viewing because they're so grainy and you can barely see the puck and while it's kind of fun to be nostalgic and and see some of the vintage games and some of the the greats from past eras uh in terms of just like sitting down and rewatching it for two hours it's not the most viewer-friendly product so just keep that in mind but until then uh, hopefully, all you stay safe, well, enjoy, and watch some old hockey with us. And we will be back next week.
0: The Hockey Podcast with Dmitry Filipovich. Follow on Twitter at Dim Filipovich and on SoundCloud at soundcloud.com slash